yeah, if you're working for a living, no matter what you do, I wrote this one for you on my break, just in case the boss is uh, watching. Buzzing, blaring, alarm needs a beating. Wanna roll over and sleep till the evening, but these bills won't pay themselves, so I hit the shower. Gotta be at the job in less than an hour. Shirt gets a smell test, make sure it's got a collar. Pack up my lunch, cause I only got a dollar. Healthy breakfast for the kids, oops, change my shirt. Picky waves for all, then it's off to work. U turn, U turn, coming back for a minute. Left my briefcase in the closet and there's paperwork in it. Now I'm sitting in traffic, this commute perturbs. Why'd I get a job downtown and buy a house in the burbs? I pull into the lot, got my coffee, I'm ready. Keep eyes down, casket, past chatty Betty. Sit down at my desk, now I'm ready to go. Man, I may not be the boss or the CEO, but there's a couple of things that I think you ought to know. I'll only surf the web for a minute or so. And I won't complain that the internet is slow. Cause when you hired me, man, you hired a pro. I gotta get that bacon and bring it home. This desk chair is as good as a th- Nose to the grindstone, with my fingers to the bone Watch me work it out, memo says I'm in the zone I may not be the MVP, but I work well with others, even grumpy Steve Stop by my cubicle and I think you'll agree There's no one up in here working harder than me Grousing, griping, I guess I could be grumbling The job ain't always fun, there's people always bumbling The only thing jamming some days is the printer They keep it so cold up in here, it's always winter Birth the popcorn again, the smell fills the building Overlap or near, but hey man, I'm chilling As I calmly reload the paper in the copier Tenth time today, these peeps can't be much sloppier Meetings, meetings, these things can be a beating The same things over and over, repeating But I'm listening well with my paper and pen Good eye contact, keep the doodles to a minimum Whatever they throw at me, I'll handle it Computer stops working again, I dismantle it Cause I'm a team player, I think outside the square I don't raise the roof, I raise the value of our shares When my task list back into the ozone layer It may take some work, colleague I ain't scared Watch out, I'm shutting down solitaire Get down, step back, about to get busy up in here Won't catch me second, just check that flag Down slip from the office and that's a Fact. One time I took a stapler, but I brought it back I'm working real hard, making sure we're in the black If you work hard, you're just like me Facebook and Twitter rarely on your screen Ain't got no fortune like a king or a queen Gotta take care of business, gotta make that great Can you uh, fill those out for me in triplicate? Thanks Sure I'd like a raise and a promotion, a 401k that's bigger than the ocean, less taken out for health and dental, a supervisor who's less temperamental. But I'm working and that's nothing to complain about. It could be worse, I could be getting all my teeth pulled out. A taste tester at a farm that grows Brussels sprouts, but like the cartoon, making sure that no duds go out. So if you're with me, throw your business card into the sky. If you don't have one, look around, grab off this supply. But nothing heavy, this is parade confetti, gotta work at the Steady boy, then you have one already. Oh, try to break like a Kit Kat. Water cooler, stretch the legs, have a chit chat. Working harder, harder working. Ask me which is we. Hold up, the boss is coming through the busy. That's just fun, right? That's just fun. Jerry, I thought you were just going to, you just enjoyed that, didn't you? (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I'm sure you have your chatty Betty, too. (laughs) And the over-laughing Larry. There's just, there is funny things in that. So... We've been looking at God at work, and uh, let's review a little bit from last week. You can get ready, turn your Bibles to Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3. We're looking at my job and God's story. And we got the first part of that looked at last week as we really looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw that God created work to be good. And so work is not a result of the curse. It's really a result of God's creative work. Work is because God works. 
And God at work in creation was a good thing. His work was skillful. It was successful. It was the same kind of work that we do. It's the same word for work that we do. But his work was also supernatural. So here's this God who can create everything out of nothing, and yet he also works in a way that is just like you work. And, uh, and, and that puts value on your work. And we saw that people at work in the garden was good as well. They were made, we are made, they were made, Adam and Eve, we are made in God's image. And so God's a worker, therefore we are a worker. It was good that God was at work, and it's good that we are at work. And in the beginning, work was delightful, it was meaningful, it was purposeful. It was satisfying, significant, and strategic. It was everything that we desire our work to be. But what we saw was work was good only as long as God was at the center of it. Work was good only as long as God was at the center of it. And we saw in Genesis 2, and you can look at these verses again, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Genesis 2, 15 through 17 really drives this point home that work is good only as long as God is at the center of it. Look at what it says. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That's work. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. In fact, some some, uh, students of the scripture even think the garden as an orchard, orchard. You know, we, we, I don't always think that way when I think garden. You know, we think of our little gardens out back with vegetables. But he's saying that it's full of trees and you can eat from any of them except for one. Verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And so we saw that in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, our purpose is to work. Our purpose in work is to worship and obey God because these two words, cultivate and keep, in the Hebrew language later become, are are later used in terms of the work of the priest and the worship of the priest. And so the idea is you don't have to be a priest to worship. You can do your work, work where you work, obey God at your work, and that is how we worship Him. And so our purpose in work is to worship and obey God who is at work in our work. That's a pretty cool thing. We also saw in verse 16, our liberty in work is to enjoy the fruit of our labor in the presence of God who's, who made it fruitful in the first place. They were free to eat, enjoy, work, and then enjoy the results of your work. There's nothing wrong with that. And that but the most important is verse 17. Our priority in work in all of life is to trust and obey the Lord who is the king over it all. That's the idea behind the tree in the center. It was in the center of the, of the garden, in the center of the orchard, in the center of their workplace, in their worship place, in their play, the place where they played, and the place where they built relationships and, and had romance and, and, and pleasures. God was at that center. We don't know anything about that tree. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know what fruit was on it. It wasn't an apple necessarily. Could have been. We don't know. The point is not the tree. The world makes everything about the tree. It's not about the tree. Who knows what that tree really looked like, except that the fruit on it was desirable, and, 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 and they wanted it. The point was, God said, I give you only one prohibition, one. The rest is freedom. The world gets that opposite. The world thinks that God is all about no, 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 no. No, God's about yes, 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 as long as I'm at the center of it. And so that's true of work as well. Our priority in work and all of life is to trust and obey the Lord who is the king over it all because working for the king is everything. Working for the king is everything everything all right and so what we saw from last week was this in the beginning god worked we worked and it was all good until one day until one day genesis 3 1 
until one day. Look in your Bibles, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. It all goes wrong beginning with Genesis 3.1. And we have to understand the bad news about work if we're ever going to be able to really see God at work in our work. And so here's what I want you to see. That God cursed the environment and the effectiveness of work because of Adam's sin. God cursed the environment and the effectiveness. When I first wrote this, I had God curse work. God created work, and then God cursed work. And then I realized, no, that's not the... That's not the he didn't curse work. He cursed the environment and the effectiveness of work. All right? So that's important to understand. And we see this in Genesis 3. Now, we, we won't read all that, but if you look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7, here's what happens. This, Genesis 3, 1 through 7 tells us the story of how Satan used the serpent to reverse the order of creation and tempt Adam and Eve to put themselves at the center of their lives and their work. So what happened originally, the way God created and worked life was there was God, and then he created Adam, and then out of Adam's side he created Eve, but the order of it was like this, and then he put them over creation. Gave them dominion. We talked a little bit about that last week. Over creation and all creatures. That was the order of God's creation. That was the order of life. Now, what Satan did was he came in and, and reversed that order. So, Satan came and used a creature. And by the way, Satan is a creature. He was created. So, he didn't just come from nothing. He was, he was created by God. But he used, of all the things he could use to tempt, he used a creature. And then who did he come at? Eve. And then how, you know, who, who followed Eve in sin and willfully disobeyed Adam. But who was the target? It was God. It was to overthrow and attack God's order. So he reversed it. And then what did he use? He used which was the, the symbol of God being the king, God being in charge. As long as they didn't eat of this and obeyed God, then God was king. Working for the king is everything. But he, as soon as they took of that, in the place of God, who did they make king? Well, yeah. But they thought they were making who? Themselves. You will become like God. The second they exerted that, but in reality, whoever said it, they came under whose control? Satan, right? Now, the good news is, who's still in control no matter what? God. All right, so there's your picture. Now, that's 1 through 7. Now, in 8 through 24, it tells the story of how God came to the garden to seek out Adam and Eve. But he came there to do two things, to curse them and to redeem them. He came to curse them and redeem them. Just saying that God came to curse sounds so perfectly incorrect. Because people don't talk about that. They want to talk about a God of love. Well, there is a God of love, but that God of love is also a God of justness and holiness. And he came to curse because there are consequences. We place ourselves at the center of our lives. All right? When we rebel against the king. Working for the king is everything. Rebelling against the king is really something as well. And so there's consequences. So he came and he cursed, but he also came to redeem. And the, and the promise of redemption is found in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning uh, the Satan uh, embodied the serpent, between the woman and the devil, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and that literally is he will crush you. He will crush the head of the serpent, but in crushing the head of the serpent, the serpent will bruise you on the heel, literally bite you on the heel. And that's a picture of the cross. On the cross, Satan uh, bit Christ on the heel. It, he killed Christ, but in reality, in that biting Jesus crushed the head of the devil and overcame and was victorious. So there's your story. 
Now, we're not talking about all of salvation and all of that today. We're talking about work. So we're just going to look at how did all this that happened impact our work. The answer to that is in verses 17 through 19. So let's look at that. Here's where God curses the environment and the effectiveness of work. Why? Because Adam and Eve made themselves God and put themselves at the center of their lives. Let's look at verse 17 through 19. Then to Adam he said, that is God, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, working for the king is everything, saying, you shall not eat from it. Now, here's the consequences. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And, and by the way, you don't eat thorns and thistles. So you see what's happening here? They could eat of everything. Everything was good. Now all of a sudden you're getting thorns and thistles. Okay? And you shall eat the plants of the field, but you'll eat from them now by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So here it is. I mean, everything's going bad, and the environment's bad. Let's look at what happens. Three things that we see. Three things as a result of this. Number one, work becomes painfully difficult. Work becomes painfully difficult. In other words, it becomes fruitless, thorns and thistles. How painful, how difficult does work become? It becomes as difficult and painful as giving birth to a baby. Can I hear the lady say, is that painful? Is that difficult? Okay, at least one woman remembers it. All right. Yeah, it's painful. In fact, the very same word for toil. Listen, the very same word uh, for toil that you, you, you see in this passage is the same one in verse 16. I, to the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain. That's the same word is used of the pain in work. In fact, in English and many languages of the world, the same word is used for both. What word is that? A woman in labor. A woman in labor. Okay, now, everything that that means... Translate that to work. I'm going to have to labor. It's going to be painful. It's going to be agonizing. It's going to be difficult. But now here's a little hope in the good news. The good news that we're going to eventually see is just like birth, was the pain worth it? Was the pain worth it? Yeah, the pain was worth it. And you translate that. Well, we've just got to understand that as long as we're in this life, as long as we're in this body, as long as we are alive, work is going to be like labor. But as a Christian, on the other side of death, on the other side of Christ's coming, our work will bring joy. The problem is we try to have that joy. Now, if, you, now listen, if you're helping your, your wife give birth, and you tell her during the birthing process, don't worry, it's going to be good here in a little bit, what are you liable to get? You're liable to get slapped and attacked and, and raged at, right? Because, but here's what happens. Sometimes when we're working in, in our life, we try to bring that joy that's going to come at the second coming into our work life now. And all you're going to get is frustration and disappointment. Because right now, labor is labor. That's all I'm trying to say. Labor is labor. Okay? Um, what was previously delightful and satisfying is now painful and difficult. So work becomes painfully difficult. Number two, the second thing that we see in the curse, result of the curse, is that work becomes profoundly disappointing. It becomes profoundly disappointing. It's not only fruitless, it now seems pointless. Work seems pointless. You saw at the end, they're just, you know, they're just... Uh, stapling, they're just stapling, they're just stapling. You feel like a drone, you're doing it all over again, week, out, week in, week out. Before the fall, everything's reproducing after its kind, and God's abundance seems to flow effortlessly. That's what, when you see in Genesis 1 and 2, it's like things are just growing. 
Eat all you want because there's just fruitfulness everywhere. And, and, and God tells Adam and Eve to cultivate and care. He doesn't emphasize planting. It's, in, it, it's implied, but it's almost like God's just given the increase and you're just there to manage the abundance. Isn't that wonderful? It's always, you know, if you're in a budgeting process, it's great managing uh, abundance, right? But when there's scarcity, then it's difficult. Okay, we're just kind of going through that right now as a church, so that relates. But when you're managing abundance, it's it's just great. It's work. You got to do it, but it's you know it's it's delightful. That's the way it was before. Adam and Eve had to work, but it was focused on cultivating and caring for God's abundance. He just seemed to cause the increase while people were to cultivate, care, control, and conquer all of creation. But after the curse, the focus is now on exhausting effort and profoundly disappointing results from all the painful and hard work. You just see it right there in the curse. It's like, okay, you're sweat of the brow. You're going to work hard. And then what are you going to get? Thorns and thistles. Okay, a demotion. You know, no recognition. However you, you see it in today's world. Listen to Ecclesiastes. Solomon understood this. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. So I hated life, because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He's saying, look, it's, it seems pointless, it seems fruitless, and anything I do get, I die, and I leave it to someone else. What is this? Then he says, what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. How many of us have laid there in the middle of the night worrying about work, wondering how we're going to get it all done, wondering how it's going to be accomplished, and will it pay off? That's what he's talking about. Listen to Psalm 90.10. As for the days of our lives, they contain, contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, maybe 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor. There's that word again. Hard work, painful, difficult. Labor and sorrow, disappointment, pointlessness. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Everything as Carrie Livgreen sung for Kansas, everything is just dust in the wind. It's just dust in the wind, which is verse 19. You're going to return to dust, and everything you do is going to return to dust. So this is work after the fall. Instead of being meaningful and significant, it becomes profoundly disappointing. Third, third aspect of the curse. Work becomes perversely distorted. Our understanding of work becomes perversely distorted. So not only is it fruitless, work now has become fruitless, it's become pointless, and sadly, it has become godless. And as long as God is not at work in your work, your view of work is going to be distorted. Even if you're a believer, I want you to understand that. Even as believers, we can buy in to this distortion about work if we don't bring God's perspective into the workplace. Amen? Are you with me? So let's look at what the distortions are. This is good stuff. And we're going to lay this out. These distortions, we're going to develop more in the, work, in the weeks to come. So this is just an overview. All right? So here you go. Number one, uh, the first distortion is this. Uh, work becomes everything. In other words, idolatry. Work becomes everything. When God, when you're not working for the king, and when God is not at work in your work, then work can become a distortion where work becomes everything, which is, in other words, it becomes your God. See, God is no longer your God, but you still got to work. So what can become your God? Work becomes your God. We seek to find fulfillment in our work to the point that it becomes everything. Okay, I'm unfulfilled 
in my work. So maybe if I work harder at my work, maybe if I get this job at my work, you know, I'm, I'm, my work is going to make me fulfilled. We become workaholics. Okay, so this is the real signal of this, is a workaholic. We begin to worship our work and the things our work can provide. We begin to worship our work and the things our work can provide. Like Adam and Eve, we begin to forsake God and disobey His Word in order to enjoy the fruit of our work. Now, think about this. See, that's why the garden is so cool. It, it, it's, it's, it literally existed, but it's meant to be a metaphor for all of life. You work. And now, God is not the center of your work. And so you live to enjoy the fruit of your work. You, you forsake God. You forget about God. And you just say, man, I'm going to work hard so I can get this 401k, so I can enjoy this, this uh, retirement, and so that I can buy all these cool things, and I can live in this certain place, and I can provide this for my kids. Well, what are you doing? We're forsaking God in order to enjoy the fruit of our labor. That's exactly what got us in this mess. With me? Here, work in this, in the, in, when work becomes everything, it's, it becomes your idol and your identity. Okay? How do I know? Now, we'll talk more. Like I said, we're going to talk more about this in the next week and the week after. How do I know that my work is an idol? Well, let me just give you an application for today. Take your work away. Or take you out of your work, and do you still know who you are, and do you still know how to relate? Are you with me? Take your work away, and do you still know who you are? And this is huge. This is huge, not only for women, but even for men, right? You know, you, you get laid off, do you still know who you are? You get disabled, do you still know who you are? And then... Many men, especially, become workaholics because they can handle work because it's less relational and it's more conquering and, and, and producing. And so they don't go home because at home you got to relate. At home, you got to listen. At home, you can't fix problems. You got to seek God's help to resolve things. Are you with me? Every man, or well, most men here, are, we're fixers. You want to fix things. You ever try to fix your kids? Doesn't work well. Ever try to fix your wife? Jordan, you ever try to fix your wife? I know you never did. But have you ever tried to fix your... Doesn't, doesn't go well, right? But, you know, you can fix the copier. You can fix, you know, you can fix things at work. So that's how you know. We'll talk more about that next week. Number two, work becomes nothing. Work becomes nothing. The second way that we get a distorted view of work, it becomes nothing, and we can call that idleness. So instead of work being everything and being idle, we see work as nothing, and we want to avoid it as much as possible. We get so frustrated with our work to the point that we treat it as nothing. We become slackers and sluggards that view work as a four-letter word. That's a necessary evil that I either have to endure and do, or I want to avoid it at all costs, or I'll do it but lay it aside for retirement as soon as possible. Okay, so work, bad. Get out of work as soon as you can, good. Okay? Now, the only problem is if you ever talk to, to people that retire, they want to fill their lives with what? With work, because that's what we were made for. That work isn't nothing. It's a vital part of who we are. So like Adam and Eve, in, when, we, when we go this route, we become, we focus more on pleasing ourselves rather than obeying God. See, they forsook their work, and instead of pleasing God through their work, they began to please themselves. Or let me put it this way, we seek to find pleasure in pleasing ourselves without work, rather than pleasing God through our work. You see the difference? So, a distortion of work is, well, I'm going to focus on pleasing myself, which means getting out of this work environment as soon as possible as I can, for as long as I can. Rather, the true way is to please God 
through your work and just keep working for the Lord, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing. All right, so that's the, the, the third thing. Now, here's a third way. And this may, you know, these are kind of the two, you see the extremes here, right? Work is everything, work, work is nothing. Now, here's the middle way, the middle distortion. Some work becomes everything, while other work is nothing. Some work becomes everything, while other work is nothing. And I would call that idealism. Okay? Idealism. Say, what's, what's idealism? Idealism is the practice of forming and pursuing ideals, especially unrealistically. Okay, that's the key. Unrealistic. It's an idealist, idealistic view of work that is unrealistic regarding some work and regarding other work. So it comes in two forms. Let's look at it. First way that you know your ideal, you have a distorted view of work that's idealistic is when you think another job, another job will be more fulfilling or far more significant than your present job. You're, you're stuck in this when you have the greener grass syndrome. Okay, the greener grass syndrome. You know, look at that job. Look at that, you know, and, 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 and there's commercials on TV late at night for people that are idle, <laughs> okay, or late at night telling you the ideal job. Right? You know, if you can just do this, then, you, you know, the greener grass. The only problem with the greener grass is that when you move to the greener grass, you often find out it's green because it's on top of a septic tank. See, that's a good joke, Rick. Let's laugh at that one. Um, let me do that same illustration in another way. It's called the John Stockdale syndrome. John Stockdale is uh, became an admiral uh, in uh, in the uh, Navy, and but he was a POW who was housed at the Hanoi Hilton, uh, which is a uh, name of a horrible POW camp during Vietnam. And here's what he observed: those prisoners who were placed all their hope. In getting home by Christmas, you know, they're in there and they're like, okay, we're going to get home by Christmas. We're going to get home by Christmas. We're going to get home by Christmas. And then Christmas came and they didn't go home and they lost it. They lost it mentally. They lost it emotionally. They lost it. And what Stockdale observed was that those who said, look, I'm going to get home someday. Um, uh, it, it was a realistic hope. It was a hope that's out there, but not, you know, uh, it must happen this way at, in, in this, in, in, at this time. They were the ones who were able to persevere until they were finally set free. And so what happens is we get idealistic and we think, man, if we can just get to that job, if I can just get to that job, then it's all going to be fulfilling and significant. And then what happens when you get to that job? The curse is still there. There's still thorns and thistles at that job. So you say, well, it's going to be the next job. If I can just get to the next job. And you get to the next job, and guess what meets you there? Disappointment, difficulty, distortion, fruitlessness, pointlessness, all the same things. The next. And, and so it becomes this syndrome of what's next. And it can happen on this side, too, of the workaholic. Okay, I'm going to become the best. You know, I'm, I'm going to become the, you know, the manager. Well, now I'm a manager, and guess what? I'm not fulfilled. So I'm going to become the CEO. Okay, so I become the CEO, and guess what? I'm not fulfilled. Okay, I'm going to become the owner. I'm going to go to work for myself, and then guess what? I'm not fulfilled. What's next? What's next? What's the problem here? Discontent. Discontentment. That's the problem. Idealism that leads to discontentment. The, ideal, the idealism is that there's another job out there that will overcome the curse. And that leads to discontent. And listen, what I just that, that scenario I just presented for you, I've seen played out, especially in men's lives, where every other year they're getting another job. They're getting another job. They're getting another job. Hey, take heart. If you're in the same job, and it's been pointless, and it's been fruitless, and yet you're, God's at work in your work, hang in. There's a lot to be said for that. A lot to be said for that. Here's the solution. Learn to be content by learning to work for the king wherever you are. Learn to be content 
by working for the king wherever you are. Listen, here's my advice to you. Don't change jobs until you can work for the king where you're at. Because then when you change jobs and it's disillusioning, you'll be okay because you're going to still be working for who? For the king. You're going to apply the lessons that you learned in the other job at your new job. All right? So that's good stuff. Working for the king wherever you are. Here's the second way idealism uh, sneaks in and distorts our view of work. Idealism thinks vocational ministry will be much more fulfilling and far more significant than one's present job, to which Pastor Bruce and I laugh, okay? Um, idealism thinks vocational ministry. Here's the problem. You buy into dualism. You buy into a dualism regarding work. And the dualism is this. There's secular work, and there's this big divide between spiritual work. And, of course, 90% or so of us work here, 10% or less work here. And the idea is, I'm unfulfilled because I'm working here instead of over here. That's dualism. Do you see it? And another way to see it is this way. The 90% of secular work is down here, but up top, the cream of the crop is the 10% of spiritual work. Two stories. I'm working on the bottom floor. I got to get myself promoted to the top. Now, here's, here's, here's the point. Dualism puts a divide between secular work and spiritual work. And dualism says that if all you do in life is make widgets for an ordinary machine, then your work is nothing. See, if, if you're down here, as my father-in-law did, make batteries all your life. That's nothing. But if you could be a missionary or a pastor, now that's something. See what I'm saying? And you'll avoid the pointlessness. I just, you know, I, I was always burdened for my, my father-in-law because he, he, he just would look at that, you know, it's a battery. Yeah, but if God's at work in your work, it's not just a battery. It's a battery made for the glory of God. And it enhanced. I mean, can you imagine life without batteries? It would not be good, okay? And I don't know whether you make batteries or if you clean toilets. Can you imagine a life without dirty toilets that don't get clean? You like going to a clean bathroom in a gas station or a dirty one? Somebody clean that for the glory of God. and that's, Or they may not have done it for the glory of God, but in common grace, it is for the betterment of God's creation. Are you with me? There's nothing little. There's nothing ordinary about anyone's job. Um, listen to this quote by Elton Trueblood. He says, The world is one, secular and sacred, and the chief way to serve the Lord is in your daily work. Listen, the place where you're going to do the most worship, the place where you're going to do the most witness is not here at our church. That doesn't devalue coming here. This is Sabbath. This is, you know, this is holy. This is the Lord's day. But the place where you do most of your worship and most of your witness is at work. And that's holy ground when you go to that. David Miller, a guy that writes on, on work and, and studies this idea of faith and work, said this, We need to guard against seeing lay ministry merely as a means to increase lay participation in the interior life of the gathered church, as opposed to equipping laity for the challenges of life in the scattered church. So we're not here just to equip you to work at church. We're here to equip you also to work outside of church. Or we're here not just to equip you to do ministry within the church building or even to the church body of people, but we're also here to equip you to do ministry on the job through your work. Okay? Perhaps Martin Luther said it best when he said this, the idea that service to God should only have to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like, is without doubt but the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by a narrow conception that service to God only takes place in the church and by works done therein? 
the whole world could abound with services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, the kitchen, the workshop, and the field. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So here's the solution. Say, what's the solution? Here's the solution. Learn not to confuse. Learn not to confuse your primary call as a Christ follower with your secondary call to a vocation, even vocational ministry. Are you with me? So this this isn't... We tend to... uh, Basically, we tend to think of these people as not called, and then we call these people the called. Now, I did a whole series down here on the call, so you got to go back. I can't teach all that, but you got to understand that everyone is what? The called, and our primary calling is found in passages like Ephesians 4.1. Let me just read that for sake of time. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called. The calling is to Christ. The calling is to be a Christ follower wherever you are. Walk with Him. Walk with Him. That means live for Him wherever you're at. Whatever you're doing, that's your calling. And do it in a manner of what? Worthy of your calling. Do it in a manner worthy of Christ. So our primary calling is to be Christ followers wherever we are. Our secondary calling is to a vocation or a workplace. And here's what's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 7, 17, listen to these words. Paul teaches the church at Corinth, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, As God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all churches. And when you work through that passage, he's basically saying, whatever you were doing when you were saved, that's where you were assigned. That's where you were called. So just because I get saved doesn't mean now i got to go off and do something spiritual and be a missionary. Now i got to go off and be a pastor if I'm going to really be significant for God. No, if you want to be really significant for God, whatever you're doing when you're saved, stay right there and do it for the glory of God. That's your secondary calling. And that secondary, the primary call doesn't change. The secondary call can change. Maybe God will call you in the ministry. Wonderful. But you're already called to whatever job you're at. And so wherever you're at, you got to do it for the glory of God. So let me, let me apply this in this way. So the question, next, people always ask you, what do you do for a living? Okay, what do you do for a living? And we have as many answers here as we have people almost. Okay, some overlap. We've got two bus drivers, so two of them would say bus drivers, but pretty much unique. So what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? What's your work? Here's what you need to say. We should all start saying, I, I, I walk worthy of the calling with which I've, I've been called. I walk worthy of Christ. No, I meant your job. No, that 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 is my primary job. Well, but yeah, I know. But what what do you? Oh, oh okay. Well, I drive a bus. You see, we want to identify people by their vocation. What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what I primarily do. I walk worthy of my calling in a manner worthy of God. That's kind of good stuff. You know, may not you may not do that, but you ought to think it. I'm not who, you know, I'm not my secondary thing. All right, but God's story doesn't end with Genesis 3. Here's the good news. God redeems everything about work in Christ. God redeems everything about work in Christ by the gospel. We've already seen this in Genesis 3.15. The promise that Christ will die, and though he dies, he will crush Satan, and he will overcome the curse. Christ will become a curse for us. That's what he does. We see it in Revelation 22. Let me, let me just read Revelation 22, 3 through 4 for you. Here's, here's the end of the story. There will be no longer any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. See what happens? The throne is going to be at the center again. See that? So just like the tree was there, now it's going to literally be God's throne. And the Lamb who redeemed us will be at the center. And His bondservants, or His slaves, will serve Him. 
That's work. We're going to be working. That's work. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's how he's going to redeem it. So let me give you good news. There's good news for you in the workplace. And again, we're going to develop this more in the weeks to come. Here's the first. Working for the king changes everything. Working for the king changes everything. If you take a look at Ephesians, you take a look at Colossians, there's these passages about addressed to workers and their bosses, to employees and employers. And you read through those verses and it says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord because working for the king changes everything. Okay? And, 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 and like in, in Ephesians uh, uh, 6, in verses 5 through 8, in just, or actually 9, in just four verses, he like mentions the Lord four to five times unto the Lord, unto the Lord. It's like he's, he's knocking us on the forehead and saying, hello in there. Working for the king changes everything. Doesn't matter if you're a slave. Doesn't even, if, it doesn't matter if you're a slave with a, with a mean master. Working for the king changes everything. And so we're going we're gonna to expand and look at that. Um, in Christ, work done under his lordship can once again become delightful, meaningful, and purposeful even though it remains painfully difficult, profoundly disappointing at times, and often often perversely distorted by others. So the curse doesn't go away, but you can still have meaning and purpose in spite of the curse. Here's the second thing. God at work in our work transforms our work into worship and witness. God at work in our work transforms our work into worship and witness. Now, I want you to look at these two passages. Turn to Titus 2, 9 through 10. Turn to Titus 2, 9 through 10. We're just going to read these because you just need to read them to understand them. You'll understand immediately the application. Look at Titus 2, 9 through 10. And then we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. So working for the king changes everything, but God at work in our work transforms our work into a place of worship and witness. We'll see how that works in the, in the weeks ahead. But look at Titus 2, 9 through 10. Urge bond slaves, or even more literally, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, stealing, but showing all good faith. Why? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You'll adorn it. You'll, you'll make it beautiful like jewelry adorned on a beautiful woman. You will put jewels on the gospel and people will see that, wow, it's, it's beautiful to serve the Lord. Now look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. 12 says this aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands work god commands work he commends work as we instructed you why so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one in other words do it as a witness so here's here's the point god at work in our work will make us more like Christ, that's discipleship, and make Christ more attractive to others, that's evangelism. That's, how, that's witnessing on the job, that's worshiping on the job. Final thing is God's, God promises the king's servants a future rest, a future rest where work will be free of the curse and cursing too. Okay, Probably one of the hardest things of working... Uh, out in the world is just having to be exposed to the cursing. Well, that's going to go away with the curse, and that's good news for many of us, okay? Now, I can't develop all this. I wanted to give it to you as a completeness to the study because ultimately we're going to get back to the garden, but it's going to be even better than the garden. And it's called rest even though we're working. Why? Because we're going to work without the curse. We're going to work for a thousand years with Jesus as our boss in the millennial kingdom. And then we're going to work for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth where 
Christ is going to be once again everything. And God's going to be everything. So, you know, if the idea is, boy, I just, I just want to die and go to heaven. Well, guess what you're going to be doing? First of all, you're not going to stay in heaven. You're going to come to the new earth. And guess what you're going to do on the new earth? You're going to cultivate. You're going to manage. You're going to work. But it's going to be curse-free and cursing-free. Amen? Is that good? Now, that's just a big picture. Uh, the application is... Think on these things. Renew your mind with these things. Let the Holy Spirit remind you that even though the curse is still in effect and work is pointless sometimes, fruitless sometimes, and godless much of the time, you can have delight, meaning, and purpose, and you don't have to become a missionary to get it. And just let you key in there... uh, Working in vocational ministry is just as cursed as the secular, so-called secular world. And if you think we're just, Bruce and I are just sitting around with meaningfulness and delightfulness and purposefulness and never experiencing painfully difficult work and uh, profoundly disappointing work and perversely distorted view of even ministry, no, we're all in the same boat, Okay. But working for the king changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we come, and I, I, I just, I'm, I'm burdened. I'm burdened for um, these men and women. Uh, and I pray that they will not be deceived by the distortion. That they will not be discontent, but they will learn to be content by working for you wherever you have them. doesn't mean they can't seek a promotion, doesn't mean they can't transfer to another job. That, that's not what it means. What it means is wherever they are, they're working for you. And their work is a witness and an act of worship. Lord, prepare our hearts for the weeks to come. But right now, change our thinking. Renew our minds about work by means of your gospel. And we'll give you the glory for it. In the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And all God's workers said... Amen. Amen.